This is the Team GB podcast, the moments that made me in association with the University of Hull. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. But if it's your first time joining us, it's great to have you on board. Every episode, we speak to truly fascinating GB Olympians or indeed Olympic hopefuls to find out about the three moments that have made them the people that they are today. Now, by the way, thank you if you've left feedback and commented online. It's very cool to hear your thoughts. And if you do like the show, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, so far... On this show, we've heard from Becky and Ellie Downey, Becky Adlington and Pete Reed. What a bloke he was, by the way. But this week's guest is Ed Clancy. Three times is he an Olympic champion, the mainstay of one of our most successful dynasties, the men's team pursuit. And I say dynasties for a reason. We discussed the phone call that changed his life, the post-2012 come down and a back injury that actually threatened his identity as an athlete as well as a chance to go for a historic fourth in Tokyo. What a man he is. Now, Ed's a real student of cycling. He's a student of training and indeed strength and conditioning, so we really get into that. He's a captivating guy, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Ed Clancy, this is an absolute pleasure for me to talk to a man who is a five-time European champion, a six-time world champion, a three-time Olympic champion. How are you? Very good, thank you. Yeah, I'm doing all right. I've just thawed out from a ride this morning. Somehow it's um, it's nearly July now, but it's, it's eight degrees outside and it's um, an absolute howling gale. But apart from that, I'm really good. And when you say howling gale, is that because you're based in Barbados at the moment? No, I'm afraid not. We're, uh, we're in Homeforth in West Yorkshire and... Um, to be honest, we kind of live in the bottom of a valley, but you know, even when you try and avoid the hills, yeah, it's, it's. I think I spent two hours on the bike and then another two hours in the shower trying to warm up. In terms of lockdown, how much have you been able to train? Because I guess in some respects, a lot of what you would do might be on a static bike, so it may not necessarily affect you in the same way as other sports. You know, essentially, we've been out, we've been able to get out on the road every day, and we can do a lot of static stuff in the garage and work away on your, your turbo train, you call it, in your garage and. You know, it, you can ride that for an indefinite amount of time if you want. You can spend six hours in your garage riding your bike. It's um, it's a little bit mentally tormenting, but it can be done. So we have been lucky from that point of view. We don't necessarily need to be in the velodrome to do our thing and to keep fit. But um, nonetheless, I'm looking forward to things getting back to normal. Mate, absolutely. And back competing again, which is what you do better than almost anyone. With that in mind... I've got a few questions for you about your own career to see how well you remember your own career. Are you game for that? <laughs> I'm ready, yeah. yeah. Okay, question number one. So your first World Championship gold came in 2005, but can you name the other four riders in the men's team pursuit? Yeah, I think I can. So there was Chris Newton, Paul Manning, Rob Hales. Oh, no, hang on. <laughs> Chris Newton, Paul Manning, Rob Hales. He's looking for clues. Oh, this is killing me inside. I'm sorry. Uh, Steve Cummings. Yes, mate. Steve. Yes, indeed. How, how did I forget Steve? I'm so stupid. Yeah. Question number two. You got there in the end, though. So at London 2012, which was just incredible, you won the Omnium Bronze. But which of the six events did you win outright? The flying lap and the kilometre time trial. Absolutely. So the first and last events. And 
in fact, I was going to actually ask you what that was like. I'm going to come back to that because I cannot wait to talk to you about 2012. Uh, question number three, two for two so far. So you won gold at 2012 as well in Team Pursuit. So were given a golden post box along with every other British Olympic gold medalist. What is the street name in Huddersfield that your box proudly stands on? I genuinely don't know, but I know it's really close to a train station. So I'm going to have a... I'm going to have a stab at Station Road. You are so close, mate. Railway Street. Ah, I can't ah. believe it. It was a good guess, to be fair, but yeah, 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 never mind. Does it look cool, by the way? Yeah, it's good. It's a nice, um, you know, when you see the big post boxes that have got like two ends on them. It's a nice big double yeah, post oh, box. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, question number four. So we're two of three so far. See if we can make it three or four. In one of the great Olympic team pursuit finals, you were part of the team who mounted an incredible comeback against Australia. But what time did you win it in? Three, three minutes, 50 seconds, point... I don't know. It's point six something, I think. Three minutes, 50 point six. It's cut. You are in 30 thousandths of a second, so we'll give it to you. 0. 0.570. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. And you won. That's all that matters. Yeah, that was, that was a... I don't know, man. Like, that is exactly how Team Pursuit is not supposed to look. If anyone ever looks at that race in... Uh, it was the final in Rio, wasn't it? It was against the Australians, and we were scrappy. We missed changes. We hit pads. We were losing for three and a half kilometres. And um, I guess a win's a win, eh? But, um, yeah, that's how not to do it. I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit later on after the final question to make it four or five. So three golds you've managed to achieve unbelievably in three consecutive Olympic Games, Beijing, London and Rio. But how many British track cycling medals have we won across those three games in total? Uh, I mean, like Jason Kenny and Chris, I have got, um, I was going to say six each, but it's more than six, I think. I don't know. I think as a, as a the Great Britain cycling team, on the track across three Olympics, it's got to be um, around 30 medals, I think. Mate, 32? That oh, was okay. pretty close. Yeah, fair play. I, I was def desperately trying to do a bit of quick maths there and trying to like add up things and like, who got what, but um, yeah, close enough. That'll do. I mean, I mean, out of interest, so it's 12 in Beijing, 9 in London, 11 in Rio. And I think sometimes, especially as Brits, we don't really do celebration that well. We do the same when it comes to perhaps rowing. We really are dominant in sports like rowing and cycling. And actually, I wonder if we look back at this time and say what an era that was for us. Because we kind of, we've just become accustomed to seeing British athlete on the podium at Europeans, at World, at Olympics. And you're very much a part of that. It's highly, highly unlikely that that's going to last forever, you know. There's always going to be uh, coaches and information and so on that's getting sort of like filtered out into other teams as you know coaches go across the world and I guess athletes retire and so on but um let's cross our fingers and hope we can make it last for another 13 or 14 months at least yes mate. yeah quite I mean with that in mind Tokyo is now just over a year away how are you feeling about it because you're 35 this will be your fourth Olympics which is remarkable does this year kind of help you does it hinder you how do you view it it's again like humans love to know what you're doing and you know we love to like try and look into your crystal ball and kind of predict the future and say all right this is where we're gonna go and you know in my head I was literally literally counting down the weeks and counting down the days until it was done and uh, you know in my mind you know on the 5th of August 
that was it. We were going to ride the Olympic Team Pursuit final. I was going to step off my bike and at least in my involvement with Team GB and the Great Britain cycling team would have come to an end. And uh, I guess there's sort of three uncomfortable facts of life that we all kind of know and accept, but, you know, when they smack you around the face, it takes a little bit of time to get used to it. And, you know, there are no... There's, you know, life's unfair as a fact of life. The goalposts move and there's no guarantees. And, you know, not just for sports people or Olympians, but, you know, everyone's been uh, smacked around the face with um, the goalposts moving. And uh, that's just what happened. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said it was an easy thing to sort of like get my head around. And I'm still getting my head around it now. And, you know, for a long time, I kind of thought, you know, I'm 35, like you said. Have I really got another year in me physically and mentally? And, you kind of um and ah about it for a while and I guess all you can do is kind of like uh, think about the pros and cons and come to your own conclusion and I guess I decided that we we're going to try and stick it out. Again, there's no guarantees. There's a good ex Sport's great for that. There's no guarantees. It doesn't matter if you've won the Olympics once, twice, three times before. There's no guarantees in sport and, um, you know, I, I'm fully aware that we're up against it this time to try and get a consecutive fourth gold medal, but I wanted to give it a go. Well, we want to see you, see you do it, and that, that'll be next year. But if we rewind the clock back to 2005, to the first moment that made you, a phone call came in. What did that mean to you, and what was that phone call? You know, funnily enough, the, the actual phone call came. I was sat at the table. I was filling in my forms for, uh, for a student loan. I was about to go to Loughborough University, which is funnily enough where you went, I believe. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I was filling in my form for Loughborough University. I was going to do civil engineering, and... Um, I was going to ride my bike as well, but, you know, just kind of to prop up what I was doing academically. And British Cycling has what they call an academy. It's basically like you're under 23 years. Um, so when you're 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, you're on the academy. And I guess that's like the school of cycling. That's kind of like the transition from being um, whatever you were going to be to being a professional cyclist. And, you know, more often than not, people don't make it through that process. But the call came and I was happy. And... Um, I threw my student loan application at the bin, as long, along with like, every other possession I had. And uh, my neighbour at the time was doing some DIY in his kitchen, so we had a, like a hire skip outside. And within a week, I think I chucked almost everything I owned in there. And yeah, I got picked up by one of the coaches at British Cycling, and that was that. Off we went to Manchester for a couple of years. Do you remember what they actually said to you on the phone and who it actually was that called you? Yeah, it was Simon Lillystone. And um, I remember like ringing him the week before to kind of... I knew I was in for a chance of the academy, but I also knew that I was a bit of a an, an outside chance. As a, as a junior and an under 16, I, I was all right at riding bikes, but I was, I was never anything to sort of stand out. You know, no one did have picked me out as... Um, you know, going on to be an Olympic gold medalist or, or anything like that. And, um, yeah, so I was hassling Simon Lillystone the week before trying to get an answer out of him because I really needed to know before I started applying to university. And um, he, he kind of, like, avoided the question a little bit and I guess that led, led me to believe that it wasn't going to happen. You know, the phone went quiet. There was no emails, anything dropping in. But then, uh, yeah, a week later when I got the call, I was happy. And then... Um, that phone conversation was shortly followed by um, a phone conversation from a guy called Tom White, who also made selection for the academy. And there was Matt Bramier, Mark Cavendish, uh, I believe Geraint Thomas. He was too young, actually, for the academy at that point in time. But, you know, he later went on to join the academy six months later. And, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those guys are bigger names than I am. And uh, it, it, was, um, it was a funny time when you think back to the things we got up to and, 
um, how we lived, yeah. What I find quite interesting, you mentioned obviously some big names there and names that possibly, dare I say, are household names. But actually, when you look at accolades, you're right up there with them, if not surpassed in certain areas. What do you think it is about yourself? Because you mentioned that you weren't a standout person. You could have easily slipped through the net. What is it about you that's led to not only success, but longevity in that? You know, we, we all, on the academy, we all had our different strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, for me, my weakness was the road. It always was and it still is. Um, I had a, a particular knack for, like, riding really, really fast on the track for three or four minutes. So, you know, I brought that to the party for sure. Um, so from a physical point of view, I feel like I was almost born to team pursuit. You know, I have a good blend of sort of fast and slow twitch muscle fibres and, you know, quite early on in my career, I was I was fairly clued up to the idea of aerodynamics and how you how you should sit on the bike to kind of um, minimise the sort of amount of drag and things like that. But in terms of like dragging my career out over the last fifteen years, it's got to be mental. And um, you know, it's something I take quite a quite a lot of interest in at the moment. And I, I guess I always have since the day I met Steve Peters back in two thousand and six. Uh, and you know, Dr. Steve Peters is well known in sports and a lot of people have read his book, The, the Chimp Paradox and things like that. And I think, you know, really, if it wasn't for Steve, I, I probably wouldn't have won half the races that I have. And I, I don't think my career would have lasted this long at all. I, I certainly don't think so. And what specifically is it that he's spoken to, if indeed you're open to telling us? But that I've I've read Steve's books. He's well-known, whether it's Ronnie O'Sullivan, whether it's working in football, whether it's working with British Cycling, but he's actually changed the game for many, many people. What, what makes him so special? Thinking back to when I was a 20-year-old or whatever, it almost seems like a bit like um, a dark art or voodoo or like some sort of weird magic that you just didn't believe in, you know? But when I sat down with Steve, he, kinda, he never spoke to me about your heart chakra, or anything spiritual, or anything like that, you know? He talked about facts, and he talked about science. And he told me, like, you know, if we put a head scanner um, and look at where the blood movement in your brain goes, you know, when, when we put you in a stressful environment, you know, when if we put you in front of um, 6,000 people in your home Olympics and your mum's crying in the stands and you've got the Aussies on the other side of the track and you know you're going to have to beat the world record, he said, this is where all the blood goes in your head. And it goes to essentially like a prehistoric part of the brain which has very, very little use, uh, very little practical application in the modern world, be it in sport or business or anything else. And um, it's that old sort of saying of it's letting your emotions get the best of your intelligence. And I guess he just kind of did it in his own Steve Peters model and he kind of showed me that this is the frontal lobe and this is what this part of the brain is responsible for. This is your limbic lobe and this is what this part of the brain will think when you're in a certain situation and over time, you can sort of pre-program your thoughts with this part of your brain. And, um, yeah, it was it was sort of complex enough um, and interesting enough to kind of really get my teeth into it and, like, buy into the idea. But at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't like I had to do a degree in psychology, you know, to kind of understand the basics of what was going on in my head. And, um, yeah, now, from, from that point onwards... You know, I, I dare say I saw Steve Peters in my career, um, you know, perhaps a dozen or so times. But I think, you know, he always left me my homework to do. And I always went away and I did that homework. And, you know, I started seeing that as part of my job. You know, there was, you know, people, people get the physical side of it. If you want to be stronger, you go to the gym. If you want to increase your fitness, you ride your bike for half an hour a day or two hours a day or whatever it is. 
the, the exact same concept applies to your sort of your mental health and your mental strength. If you want to be better at it, you've got to practice it. Just like going down the gym, even if it's 10 minutes a day on reflecting on your thoughts and writing down positive things or uh, sort of like understanding when you got hijacked by the chimp, as he put it. And um, kind of like, you know, working on that and trying to like turn it around into positive things. So if we skip forward to say Beijing, for example, it's going to be your first potential Olympic gold medal if you win. It's you've received work from Steve Peters at this point. What goes through your head as you're about to turn the wheels for the first time? Yeah, that's a good question. And it depends if you're in the right frame of mind. So, um, again, you know, again, to like paint the picture, you're sat in your first Olympic final and um, I, I, I sort of lead the team off. That's always been my job in Team Pursuit. And there's an awful lot of like responsibility. You can really mess up the, the, the race, not just for yourself, but for three of your best mates, you know, for the coaches, the performance staff. And you've got this kind of, this uh, this voice in your head saying, what if I miss my first change? What if I go out too fast? What if I go out too slow? What if I get a puncture? What if somebody pours a bottle of every hand water down the track and we all slap off? You know, like these ridiculous things. And what if the Australians go five seconds faster than we've seen before? And, you know, there's so many things that your limbic lobe will throw at you that are completely irrational and irrelevant and... Um, Having worked with Steve, you, you kind of, you've got to kind of talk yourself, literally talk yourself out of those thoughts by reciting fact, truths, and logic. I'm a, uh, at the time, I was a 23-year-old man. I'm dressed up in a skin suit, about to ride my bike around a wooden track. This isn't life and death. And this race, whilst it's got um, consequences that could only change my life for the better, it's still a bike race. No more, no less. And... Uh, you know, when you start reciting fact and truth and logic and it's as simple as like, I'm going to do my best. And by definition, there's nothing else I can do. If you kind of, you, it's like having a devil on your shoulder. You know, you've got one voice saying one thing, giving you the if this and but that and what happens if this and what happens if that. And then you've kind of got the voice of reason as well. And you've just got to, um, I guess it's having enough self-awareness to kind of listen to the voice of reason and truth and logic and for me, that was the only way I could sort of deal with those, um, deal with that situation. And, you know, touch wood so far, it's always got me through the big events. If I was going to chuck something back at you, so I, I would know that it is a race. I've ridden a bike for many, many years. It's not life and death. The chances of Evian Water coming down the track are slim to none. The chance of the Australian team responding with something just incredible is almost by definition incredible. But if I didn't care about this, I would not have trained as hard as I have for this. I wouldn't have dreamt of what would come of this. So how do you kind of manage that side of things where it's almost because it, especially the Olympic game, that for me, that goes back to my, almost my very being, seeing Linford Christie, seeing Sally Garner, seeing these people that did something that was just beyond all comprehension. And now you're there. This is your chance to become the new hero how do you manage that yeah that's an interesting question and um i guess you know when you sat there on the start line in an olympic games um if you're anything like me i mean i'm the same as you like i, I saw guys like chris oy and jason queely you know before and chris borman even like riding around on his lotus superbike when i was a kid and you know I, I wanted nothing more than to try and emulate 
what those guys were doing and what go those guys had done. And um, yeah, absolutely, you, you desperately want it. You know, when you're sat on the start line, you'd rather die trying than lose that race. And that's a very emotive thing. And I guess, you know, all your emotions, again, you know, come from that part of your brain, which is um, the limbic lobe, which is kind of egotistical. And, you know, it wants to be the, the, the big chimp or whatever it is, the, the top dog. And But that's all well and good, you know, when you get that close to that pot of gold, you know, motivation and that drive to win really does take care of itself. The The issue at that point in time is kind of, controlling that emotion so you don't get overexcited so you don't set off too fast so you don't do anything just ridiculous you know but your the question well at least in my mind it really applies when when you're six months out when you're a year out when you're two years out from the olympics you you've really gonna draw on two things to be honest there's a difference between motivation and commitment but in my opinion uh you absolutely need both so I guess, you know, my motivation, what, what kind of um, motivates me, if you like, in an emotional sense, is that big dream. It's, I want to become the most successful track rider of all time or the most successful team pursuer of all time. And um, you want that Olympic gold medal. You dream of standing up on the top step of the podium with your mates and that, you know, from an emotional point of view, that's your drive and that's what gets you out on days like today when it's hammering down with rain sideways and it's eight degrees in July. But like every emotion, like being happy, like being sad, uh, motivation comes and goes. And, you know, when you don't have motivation, that's when you need to rely on the other thing, which is commitment. And, um, you know, again, commitment, if I'm not mistaken, comes from the, the logical, sensible, uh, part of the brain which kind of relies on truths and facts and that's when on days like today it's like right well I've been tired recently I've had a few days off this is my first day back this is this is not going to be my best day on a bike I'm riding my mountain bike around Homeforth in rain at eight degrees you know there's nothing that's going to excite or motivate me to go out today so on days like today you rely on commitment so I think logically I'm like right I've looked at the pros I've looked at the cons and I've decided that I want to stick out the last uh, 13, 14 months of my career. And whether we make it or not, I want to try to get to Tokyo. And I know that we've sat down with the coach and the sports scientist and the physiologist, and this is the training plan. And this is the ride I have to do today. So it's, it's kind of a binary thing. You commit or you don't commit. And um, you kind of, you tell yourself that if you do commit, you'll get back and you'll have a, a sense of achievement and satisfaction and it's kind of worth going through that pain um, to get to the other side. And it's, yeah, I, I don't know if I explained it particularly well, but there's definitely a difference between motivation and commitment. Like, you know, when you're motivated, great, roll with it. Get out with the boys and do six hours in the sunshine and, you know what I mean, set a personal best and high-five the crowd at the top of the hill. And, you know, when you're not motivated, when you're tired, you're struggling, you rely on commitment. It's a, it's a kind of a logical thought through process, which you know is going to bring you something at the end of the tunnel. Mate, you explained it perfectly. There's a guy called Jocko Willich, and he's a former Navy SEAL, and he talks about the same thing. He says, motivation will let you down. Com uh, he, but he calls it discipline, which is exactly the same thing. And he said, discipline is what will get you through when motivation makes a... I think he says something like, when it makes a fool of you or d doesn't quite stay with you. But 
This is all about moments that have made you. And clearly there are a number of moments. I love to bring you forward to your second moment in London 2012. I mean, first of all, what was that like being a part of Team GB in one of the most um, blue ribbon sports, I guess, in that amphitheatre where the cacophony of noise was something truly unforgettable? Yeah, I mean, the, the actual moment itself that you described so well was, um, it's hard, to, I can't put it in words like you can, but it was just, it's like something, uh, it was out of this world, honestly. I mean, I've been to busy velodromes before, but like the atmosphere in the in arena in 2012, it, people like throw the word electric or, you know, once in a lifetime, but it was, it was both of those things and more. And, you know, you could, you could feel it in the air. And, um, you know, never before have experienced anything like that. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to go through another Olympic since then. And there's been nothing since that's been, you know, quite the same as that. You've got to remember, like, you know, even when uh, we were rocking around Beijing winning gold medals, there was more talk about London Olympics than there was about Beijing. You, st you, know, you stood there in Beijing with a gold medal around your neck and... People put a microphone in your face and they talk about, what about London in four years' time? And <laughs> I remember going to see the London site, you know, and it was just, um, literally, it was just foundations and blocks of concrete and stuff. And, you know, I kind of, I went back to visit the site, you know, for various appearances and things like that. And it was, it was just bizarre to turn up there on race day for the big occasion. It had been hyped up so much and, you know, it, it really did live up to the hype. And, um... Yeah, I mean, long story short, like, you kind of go through a range of emotions and you kind of sit there in your um, in the Olympic Village with kind of sweaty palms thinking about the big day. And again, we've you know, got the voice and the, the kind of voice of reason and the, the, sort of, the voice of like, you know, what if we do this and what happens if that happens? And, you know, to sort of go through all that and then come out on the other side and, you know, winning that bronze medal in the Omnium was brilliant. But to stand on the top step in the team pursuit with three of your best mates in your home Olympics, uh, kind of the, the pinnacle of your career... 27 years old you know it's it's fairy tale stuff and um that moment itself i mean i don't care who you are or like what you buy with your money or you know <laughs> what drugs you take i don't think there's a high that you know you can find like that and um yeah that there in that moment and the kind of the, the days following it it's it's that emotional acceleration as well you kind of go from being in that you're thinking about everything you eat. You're thinking about everything you drink. Every time you're on your feet or walk down a flight of stairs, you're thinking about, is this going to detract from my performance? Is this going to detract? You know, even like conversations you have with people, you're like, am I wasting emotional energy here? And as soon as you cross that line and it's all over, you know, particularly if you do well, you've just gone from being in such a, a kind of a thoughtful, tense uh, place to a place of just like, I mean, you couldn't care less about anything. Everything's brilliant. You know, someone could break into your house and nick your car and you'd shrug it off. You're invincible. It's like a superpower. And um, I guess you ride that high for, um, for, for a period of time, not an indefinite amount of time, but you do ride that high for a long amount of time, yeah. So you crossed the line. Who, who in the crowd was there to support you that day that you personally knew friends or family? Yeah, my mum was there, my stepdad, Kevin, uh, my little sister, my brother was there. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of, like, my friends in the cycling world, there's, you know, all the coaches, the sports scientists, physiologists, um, all the kind of connected people to do with them and their friends and family. There was, um, 
you know, I, I just wish there was enough tickets for everyone. Um, you know, that place was booked every day, every session, every day. And, um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the building. And um, when, I think when I, it was in the team pursuit, when I crossed the line, um, there was a Union Jack floating around in, in the stand. So, you know, as you do, you, I grabbed the Union Jack and I held it above my head. And then about two months later, I got, a, um, got an email from Sherry Blair, Tony Blair's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sherry Blair. So um, she was like, oh, by the way, Ed, um, I don't know if you know who I am or what I do. And I was like, of course I know who Sherry Blair is. And uh, yeah, she uh, politely explained that that was, um, I can't remember if it was a son or a daughter, but it was, it was one of her children's flags that I grabbed out of their hand and kind of like, you know, fist pumped around the velodrome. So uh, yeah, she did invite me into her office in London to kind of like um, meet her and the team and so on, but uh, we never got around to it. But still to this day, I've got that flag and... Um, She's not getting it back anytime soon. <laughs> in case she's listening. With, with that in mind, what don't we know about, for example, London 2012? Because you think about it and it, it's almost, it epitomises cloud nine for me. I think of the joy. I think of the whole country coming together. I think of certain moments of certain athletes. But what don't we know about your journey at that point? I hope this doesn't sound negative because it's not supposed to be negative at all. And in fact, you can put a really positive spin on this. But I think for anyone out there that kind of thinks that happiness or success or, you know, self-esteem or any of that sort of stuff is, um, it's like an equation. If I can earn this amount of money, then I feel like I've got enough. If I'm a CEO of a company, then, then I'll allow myself to feel successful. And it's the same for an athlete, you know, if you, if you kind of, um, what I'm saying is if you wait till uh, you win Olympic gold medal to you kind of allow yourself to feel like a success, you're going to be waiting an awful long time because it, it doesn't matter if you get it or not, you know? And um, I think what, what I really left that London experience with, I'm not talking about in that moment, I'm talking about two years later, is the lesson I learned that you can kind of, you know, if you, if you grow, I don't know like uh, what people listening to this will be thinking about doing or going or what profession they want to be. But I think it's the lesson I learned that is it's not circumstantial, you know, feeling like you're a success or you've got enough money or you've got enough gold medals. Uh, if, if that's the way you think, it'll never change. It doesn't matter like how much you win or how much you earn or so on, you know. And um, I think that was the most important thing I got out of London. Thank you very much for that. That's, that's actually really profound. And it's, I think actually it's a side of sport and I guess a side of especially Olympic sport that maybe gets slightly overlooked. And I think maybe that's why possibly people can have a slight crash at the end of it because what do I do next? Do I train again for another Olympic cycle? Can I repeat what just happened there? Will I get that moment back? But kind of with, with that in mind... That brings me kind of onto your third moment that made you, which is possibly something that either breaks you or makes you, and that's your, your back injury. Um, so it was like September 2015, and I just rode the Tour of Britain. So that's um, an eight-day uh, road race. and goes over mountains and you know, 100-mile a day on the road, and it's never really been my forte, but um, I got round and I finished, and I was happy, and it was some great training that I could use to kind of like take me through the track, track season that winter. Um, the last stage finished in London. I crossed the line, I went back to the team bus and uh, there was a, a young spectator outside and um, the, the director sort of like called me off the back of the bus, I was getting changed and 
Uh, he said, oh, there's, there's a young lad outside that's after your autograph. So I was like, grand, yeah, sound. I'll just tell him I'd be in there in a couple of minutes. So I got changed, got my kit on. I went outside and um, I was staying overnight in London and I had this suitcase that was, you know, just tiny. It had a pair of boxer shorts in it and a wash bag. And uh, I, uh, I remember I went outside with this suitcase. I signed an autograph uh, for the kid. And then I turned around to pick up that suitcase, which must have weighed all of about two and a half kilos at most. And I felt this pop in my back. And um, it was f followed with uh, a kind of unusual pain down my leg. And I don't know, it was kind of hard to pinpoint what was hurting. But it was hurting a lot. And uh, as you do, you just kind of walk it off. And, you know, we just finished the Tour of Britain. And we had like a sponsor event the next day. So I attended that and got on the train afterwards and you know in sport you kind of you, you especially when you're getting on a bit you kind of like always managing little injuries and niggles and stuff like that and at the time I didn't really think much more of it um I got home and I spent a few days sort of recovering and doing like really easy rides but you know after three or four days I was like I better go see the physio just to check this isn't anything serious and then um yeah, I didn't know at the time but that was the start of you know, I don't know a battle that really lasted all the way to the Olympics in Rio so um, the rowers get this a lot. I just had a prolapsed disc in my back. Um, so to try and describe that to people, essentially like, you know, between your vertebrae and your spine, you have these little uh, donuts, almost like donuts that are filled with jam uh, that act as almost like little shock absorbers for the spine. And um, one of my donuts had exploded and the jam had come out of it. And it kind of, it was pressing on um, the nerve which went down my right leg. So we tried to manage the problem. We have um, we had a couple of ep epidural injections into my spine, like a pregnant woman, and um, it uh, it kind of eased the symptoms. And by the time the the kind of painkillers and the anti-inflammatories had worn off in the epidural injection, then we were, we were really left in a bit of a state, to be honest. And I was at the top of uh, a mountain in Tenerife uh, doing an altitude training camp. No surgeon in the world will touch. Um, a back operation if they don't have to. I don't know if it was a blessing or a curse, but in that altitude camp on the top of that mountain, uh, I think it sort of coincided with the anti-inflammatories and the painkillers wearing off. My leg was that bad that, you know, not, not only did we have sensory sort of malfunction in that leg, it, it was completely paralyzed. It had no motor function, which is the secondary function of the nerve. And um, it, it I, I couldn't ride a bike, I couldn't walk. You know, I was in constant pain. So uh, British Cycling and, um, you know, the doctors and everyone did a great job. Within a week, we were under the knife and uh, we woke up on the, the 3rd of December from the operation. And that was eight months to go, almost exactly, to uh, the Rio Olympics. Ah, uh, man, it's a testament to, like, you know, the good people and the physiotherapists and uh, everyone at British Cycling that we managed to get... Uh, up and running, you know, riding a, a bike and everything like that was um, quite an achievement. But I mean, I, I, this is making a long story really, really short, but long story short, we ended up um, riding the world championships in March. We had to do it for the qualification purposes. I was terrible. We lost the Australians in the final, <laughs> mainly down to myself and just not being up to scratch, but we kind of ticked a box and then off we went to Rio and um, it went it went better. <laughs> That's an understatement. Yeah, it went an awful lot better. But it's really revealing that you said after the operation, we woke up 
after the operation. Yeah. Was there a real sense of it wasn't just you going through this? Yeah, definitely. It applies to like your your victories as well and things like that. It was, there's a massive behind every gold medal you see. There's a massive great team effort behind everything and anything. And you know when um, I'm probably going slightly off topic here, but um, you know when people want to look at your, your gold medal or whatever, it's like I, I let people look at it and you let school kids pass it around and stuff. And um, every Olympian I've seen's always been the same. There's very few Olympians that are protective over their medals, if you like. And I think that's because um, the Olympians realise that they haven't done it on their own. You know, they haven't done it on their own. And it's um, I ain't just talking about lottery funding here. Um, you know, we're talking about the army of people, um, and not just in like the present world. You know, people from your past that like help you get on bikes and took you to your first club race and you know, their associated friends and family and people that just lent you a, a wheel for this race and that race. And, you know, by the time you get to your, your sort of early 30s and you're doing your third Olympics, uh, that, the amount of people that have kind of, like, helped you get to that place, it must be in the thousands, if not tens of thousands, you know. And um, to get back to your question, sorry, like, you know, the, the recovery from there was very much a team job. You know, there was um, a very skilled surgeon involved and then... Uh, the doc team doctors, uh, Hannah, the physiotherapist, Phil, uh, the team head physio from British Cycling at the time. And, uh, you know, even like down to management and things like that, they, they, at that point in time with eight months to go, you could have easily forgiven, you know, my sponsors and my road team and British Cycling and everybody else involved. You, I'd have forgiven them if they turned around to me and said, you know what, Ed, we're going to concentrate on these four guys. But they didn't, like, you know, management, um, the coaches. Yeah, no, nobody gave up on me, which was nice. Does it make you think going into Tokyo, you almost want to have that Olympic preparation to do yourself better justice, to not try and hope that you'll make the start line, but actually know that you can be the best version of yourself in the best possible shape, if indeed that is possible? Yeah, definitely. I think that's always the 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 goal as an athlete and um you know should i make the team next year i'll be 36 and a half years old when we get to tokyo and that in itself is um th there's this like there's this quote banded around you know in this in sport where somewhat along the lines of it's it's hard to get to the top but to stay at the top is even harder and um you know i remember seeing that as a kid and being like well surely you know if you made it to the top then all of a sudden it's going to be easier to get there if anything because you know how it does it but it's not it's it's true you know looking back to beijing and that first gold medal i mean no doubt we had um we had you know talent we had a talented team and we were very forward thinking in terms of um gear choice and bike position and aerodynamics and strategy and and all sorts of things like that and, uh, you know, we really kind of moved the game on. But looking back, we didn't know how good we had it. And um, four years later, you know, after a period of not winning against the Australians, you know, we've, we finally kind of turned it around. And, you know, by that point in time, there was, um, you know, a lot of co coaches, sports scientists, uh, research and innovation guys that had kind of, you know, gone off to other teams. And all of a sudden that intellectual property isn't just all in-house. It's, it's kind of dispersed around the world and all of a sudden you've got these new super kids from Australia and Denmark and Italy popping up and they're all over the place now and um, at the recent world championships we finished in fifth place going into um, well what would have been my final Olympics in Tokyo 
there's no doubt about it. Like, if we win, you know, the Great Britain cycling team win a gold medal in Tokyo, that will be, um, if I'm there, that'll be my greatest feat. And, you know, as a team, as a Great Britain cycling team, it'll be their greatest feat. It's getting harder and harder. There's um, people are learning from you know how we move the game on this whole marginal gains um, ethos that Sir Dave Brailsford brought to the party. Um, you know even like the psychology that I spoke about earlier on in the conversation that's out there now. You know we were incredibly fortunate to have like Sir Dave that kind of like really moved the game on in certain areas, and we had a few great uh, sports scientists like Matt Parker and Dan Hunt that kind of like just kind of they had no respect for tradition or like how things were done. And that was a good thing. They just, you know, they were more than happy to start with a clean slate and we had nothing to lose at that point in time. You know, we weren't the Great Britain cycling team as it is now. We had no expectation. We had no pressure. And, um, you know, we were kind of free to like pick and choose and do what we wanted without that fear of um, kind of losing what we had. And uh, long story short, like I said, you know, it, it gets harder and harder. And for me, going into the last Olympics, they, you've got age against you. You've got to cut the new, the young pups, um, you know, in other teams and in your own team. And uh, yeah, it, it definitely gets harder than it does easier. Mate, final question. So if you make it to Tokyo next year and you think about names of Hoy, Wiggins, Thomas, Cavendish... People, like I said at the very start of this, don't necessarily think about yourself. What would you like us to know about you? And we see you in your helmet. We see you in Team Pursuit. You haven't even taken your first rotation of the wheel yet. What would you like us to know about that guy who's about to go off? You know, when I really think about that question, um, you've just got to think about like what you truly value. So... I guess the easiest way to like really think about what you truly value is the deathbed scenario. Like, you know, everyone's thought about it. So, you know, for the people listening to this, you, you close your eyes and you imagine you're a, a great, great granddad or a great, great grandma and your great, great grandson, Barry, or whatever he's called, is at, the, is at the foot of your deathbed. And he says, great, great granddad, Ed, what should I do with my life? And, um, Almost everyone at that point in time will turn around and say, be nice to people, be kind, um, strive for great things, but you know, don't stress if they don't happen. You know, things like that. It's just like, be a good person. Um, try to be positive. Try to make other people feel good about themselves. And, um, you know, as much as I'd love to sort of like go out in style in Tokyo and spray a bottle of champagne around a nightclub and, you know, dance up and down and, rejoice in all the sort of like appearances and adulation you get i think when i'm really pushed that's what i want to remembered for you know like my values i want to i want to try and be um to be a reasonable person at least you know and uh, try and make my teammates feel good and try and be a positive influence on other people and youngsters coming up in the sport and that sort of stuff hey thank you very much this has been a joy talking to you dude and you mentioned kind of um between over four years essentially the the knowledge behind the ip as you put it of what goes into becoming an olympic champion is out there now whether it's with australia or us or whoever it might be with i think you leaving the game will also be a vacuum of experience data information that hopefully you'll act as a consultant and give back mate because you're you're a world and wealth of knowledge and i've learned a lot speaking to you so thank you so much for your time mate and fingers crossed 
in just over a year's time, we'll have another conversation and I'll go, mate, was it ever in doubt? <laughs> That's very kind. I appreciate the uh, kind words. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Stay healthy. All right, cheers. When you consider what Ed's achieved, I think he's about the most successful Olympian you never hear from. I mean, he's down to earth. He's salt of the earth. Just a real pleasure to learn from for an hour. In fact, he was too humble to even mention his own academy, which is the Clancy Briggs Cycling Academy, which basically tries to get young people more active, get on their bikes and enjoy it when they do it. So if you fancy getting involved, it's the Clancy Briggs Cycling Academy. And who better to inspire you to get on a bike and get active than a three-time Olympic champion, Ed Clancy. Well, if you enjoyed that, make sure you join us next week on the moments that made me in association with the University of Hull for insight into another Olympian's defining moments. And that Olympian is the 2016 Rio hockey gold medalist, the penalty shootout queen, the hero, Maddie Hinch. Thank you very much for listening and join us next week. <laughs>